Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we have Jason Badger. He's a lighting and theatrical effects designer and programmer. He's worked extensively in theme parks as well as on major events and television and theater for over 25 years. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. I've actually wanted to have you on the show for quite some time, uh, ever since I found out how big your influence is out in, out in Los Angeles in uh-huh. parts of the business that we really haven't talked about a whole lot on the show. Tell me about where you are right now in the business. What percentage of your work every year is attractions versus like temporary theme park installations versus events and performances? Well, before up to this point, I was really all over the map as far as genres were concerned. I've worked in just about every conceivable thing you could think of to program uh, lighting for. I've done it for years and years and years now. I've, I've pretty much zeroed in on two lines of business, one being for Disney, working on uh, attractions. Yeah. And then also, uh, I, I still get out every now and then. I do a little little corporate theater, little uh, you know industrial type type work. And then as a designer and programmer, one or the other, or both? As a programmer. Um, and then Disney is a little bit of both. So you're on staff with Disney now? Yeah. Uh, right now, I work for Walt Disney Imagineering as a principal show lighting designer. I see. Okay. What does that job description mean at Imagineering? For me, it's a theatrical lighting designer. It's an architectural lighting designer. It's a systems integrator. And it's a control designer, kind of all into one, one package. And uh, a couple of things you are done on site, and a couple of things are done way in, in, in advance. So it's, it encompasses a lot of lighting responsibilities more than just being like, a designer. There's a lot of different hats I have to wear to get to the end product. Got it. Got it. How did you get your start and what led you to getting behind the lighting console in the first place? Uh, when I was seven and a half, <laughs> I saw my friend. This is, in, this is earlier than most stories begin for this, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, third grade, I saw my friend in a children's theater show. And I saw a bunch of people moving in black on stage. And I knew immediately that I wanted to do that. So I, the very first show I pushed scenery in was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs when I was seven and a half. Wow. This was a children's theater, right? So it was geared toward people doing that. Maybe I was definitely the youngest uh, kid uh, on the stage crew. Between seven and a half and nine, I really started paying attention to lighting and especially the guy who was running the board with all the faders on it that was controlling lighting. And I thought that was pretty much the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So... I started lighting when I was nine. I started hanging lights. And, you know, it took me about a year or so before they let me touch the board. But I've been doing lighting for quite some time. Sadly, high vis isn't available in nine-year-old size. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was rocking the two-scene preset, you know, back in whatever year that was. For, you know, way a long time ago, I knew I was going to be doing lighting. So. so you started running consoles at nine. Yeah, yeah. How did that transition into working professionally? And when did that transition into working professionally? So the usual path, you know, did theater in high school. Um, in high school, I met a community college guy uh, who was a technical director who started to introduce me to some like outside freelance work, like union overhire, 
at uh, Oakland Coliseum, you know, putting in like concerts and stuff like that. And I was fortunate enough to live near a theme park in Northern California called Great America. And they, had, they actually had a pretty robust shows department at that time. This was uh, back in the early 90s. And I, uh, I started just by working in the amphitheater during the summer, you know, where they had radio concerts and, and whatnot come in every weekend, you know, a couple times a week during the summer. Was so that like local or touring bands or a little bit of both? You know, the B circuit of touring bands, you know, got maybe it. not quite so big, but yes, yeah, so it was a lot of local. And then, you know, you got like George Thurgood or, you know, like, yeah, you know, yeah. so near the end of the summer, um, there was a call in uh, to the crew. It's like, oh, we need someone to go run spot at the Flintstones Broadway and Ice show. You know, like they had someone called out. They have no one to fill it in. So like, hey, Jason, go in there. I was like, I haven't run, run the show before. It's like, don't worry, just get, run up there, get on headset. They'll walk you through it and run the, you know, light the ice shows, the four or five ice shows for the day. I was like, oh, okay. So like, Look, there's, only, like, there's only three handles. You can't do anything wrong. And it was a trust spot too. They had two oh. trust spots. And actually, it was not so much trust spot as it was an opera spot, you know, right at the right at the proscenium. Yep. So that's a hell of a thing for your first one. The canned overture is playing while I'm running up the stairs, like just get a headset. I'll tell you what to do. Like ah, you know. So so I did five shows that day. It was it was a lot of fun. Um, and then and then the next weekend, actually, they offered me into the there was like a magic show, big magic show, you know, cheesy nineties magic show, you know, with uh, revealing a Corvette on stage because it was sponsored by Chevrolet, et cetera. And that, that was my first foray into a uh, theme park uh, entertainment. <laughs> uh, and then I worked there for three years before I started applying at Disneyland. It seems like you learned real quick that you know, the theme park entertainment can, oh, it, oh, the range is so large. <laughs> what it can mean, what it can be, and and who is paying for it, and who wants what they want out of it. Yes, right. And I was born a Disney nut. I was born into a Disney nut family. My mom is is a huge, huge fan. So we would go to Disneyland, you know, every year, every other year. And so I was already, I already knew I also wanted to work for Disney at that point too. And uh, in fact, before I started applying, you know, I would see shows at Videopolis at the time, which was like a, a large outdoor theater venue. And uh, I would totally geek out on everything that they were doing there. I remember seeing a Christmas show there at the time, and they had more moving lights in one place that I'd ever seen before. You know, and this would have been in 90, I think it was 90, 91. And I couldn't believe how many moving lights they had for, you know, a character show. There weren't even that many around in 91. Yeah, it was all Morpheus gear. Uh, actually, you know, like, cause you, you, you couldn't, you know, like what, there was Verilite and Morpheus were the biggest ones at the time. And yeah, they had a ton of Morpheus gear on that show. So yeah. So then I actually did three interviews before I, I finally got hired. And in, uh, one of them, they said, well, we want to hire you, but because you live in Northern California, we don't apply again next year because this is just for Christmas. And I don't, we don't think there's enough work. We, they were like looking out for me too much. I'm like, don't look out for me. I'll come down, you know? Uh, so uh, it was by the next time I, you know, in summer of uh, 94 that uh, I moved down to Southern California. Okay. So then what happened? Yeah. Well, so I, I exclusively worked for Disneyland from 94 to 90, about 98, 99. And specifically what were you hired as? The department I worked for was called technical is called technical services, and they do the breadth of everything there. 
at the resort, which is, it goes from special events, TV shoots to day-to-day operation of audio in the park, you know, background music to mm-hmm. the full stage shows and spectaculars uh, that they do. And so when I when I hired in back when I hired in, there was no promise of what you were going to do. This you're going to be a general stage technician. So for me at the time, that meant doing uh, film shoots. Like I was just doing special event shoots because at the time it was like six months before the 40th anniversary. And they were getting ready to open the Indiana Jones Adventure uh, ride. They're a huge, huge ride that opened in five. Very so ambitious, were, let's say. They were doing a ton of film shoots for that attraction. So I, I started working one or two times a week doing film shoot stuff, you know, either for that or just general. Because they're, they're doing film shoots there all the time for various things. You know, they're filming the, the, the holiday special or... You know, there's radio remotes going on or whatever. So I was just generally just doing that. And then the next year uh, I got put on a, you know, a small show at Tomorrowland Terrace. I ran that off and on throughout the year. And uh, during this, there wasn't enough work to sustain me fully there. So uh, I actually, right after I moved down here, I realized that I wasn't going to be working too much. So I, I got a job at Coco's down the corner from, from where, I, uh, where I was living. What, uh, what is that? Coco's is like a Denny's or, uh, yeah, basically it's like a Denny's. And uh, I, I did that for three months until I could find something else. And then for another year, I worked at Suncoast Motion Picture Company at the mall. Yep. Uh, selling laser discs and, and uh, VHS tapes. So I was doing that up through 96. And uh, also at the beginning of 96, uh, I went on tour uh, on a mall tour for Disney, uh, which was building a big recreation the Cathedral of Notre Dame for the Hunchback of Notre Dame movie. Wow. So we would, we would take all this set and all these little shows and tra- we traveled to 26 uh, malls around uh, the U.S. for four and a half months. Um, so we went to these malls and it was all about, you know, they would have a door that could be like widened just a little bit and all our scenery like came apart. So it, it would all go in through a standard size double door. Oh, so okay. yeah like it was it was very modular you know so like and the, the the notre dame cathedral was huge actually it was like all put together with coffin keys and like these you know painted scenery you know it was a it was like a jigsaw puzzle putting that thing, <laughs> that thing together but pretty much as far from lighting as i could get you know but but it was it was something to help me get my status you know like to be able to at least stop working for suncoast <laughs> that's where i finally got my full-time status working for that department. It wasn't until 99 after meeting um, a designer at Imagineering, I started working for Imagineering. So that would have been in 99. Got it. So then you started working for Imagineering. So what happened at that point, around 99, while I was working for Disney, I actually started making contacts on the outside. So I really started, uh, not only did I start working with Imagineering a bit, which I, I did some special events through a designer who was working for Imagineering, but would also do uh, shows at the El Capitan, mm-hmm. uh, do movie premieres for, for Disney. But he also introduced me to designers up there. So like the first attraction that I worked on was a rehab of the Tiki Room in Tokyo. So I programmed an, an expression with eight incandescent track spots and a bunch of LED fixtures, not a bunch, a few LED fixtures, uh, redoing a brand new show in uh, Japan at, at the Tiki Room. Okay. But I was also meeting some people on the outside. So 
Um, I started doing a little bit of uh, television work and theater work with some designers that I met. And so who was that key designer that you were working with in Southern California and then introduced you to some of the folks? Brian Gale uh, is a designer who was working in Imagineering at the time. And he and I worked together on a uh, ill-fated show at Disneyland called Light Magic, which was a parade slash street show that had four rolling stages that would come out and park and then do a show and then move to one other place along the parade route and do the same show again. What was notable about it is we had 92 VL6s in 97. And all of us tech, there was like five of us techs, we all were sent out to Dallas to become official Verilite technicians. Yeah. That we could have this this huge rig. And we bought the rig at the time, you could write, and then leased it for a dollar a year or something. Um, but we had... 90, yeah, we had 92 Verilites all mounted outside, uh, 92 VL6s on parade poles. And in fact, if you go and you, uh, if you look at Small World right now, there are these really, really big parade pole, lighting poles that are in the mall there. Uh, and at the top of it, there's like a very odd opening, and that's where the VL6s were mounted. Um, and they, you know, obviously not there anymore, but, uh, the reason they brought me in on that particular show is because in the year previous, I had shown that I could program that I was going down that track and like, you know, like trying to get more gigs at the park as a programmer. And, uh, they were going to use a new and upcoming console at the time, uh, the end of 96 called the whole hog two. So I was the hog two programmer for this street show. And it was because of the Hog 2 and meeting Brian that why I was really getting work. I became very proficient on the Hog 2, and that's why I started working more outside. So, yes, so I was working with Brian, and Brian, you know, with those shows at Disney he was telling me about. But also, I also met another designer, uh, Jason Kantrowitz, who had done a show at Disneyland. But he introduced me to Ken, and, and I, that's where I started making connections outside of Disney. Got it. And how did you learn to program? So with the expression, it was, we had one at Great America. And before that, one of the shows that I operated, it was on a Strand mini palette. And the other theater had an expression, original expression. So there, there was some thumbing around on that. I didn't really use it too much. Then another show at uh, Disneyland, the one that was on for that whole year in 95, they had an original expression. So, you know, it was, it wasn't any training. It was just kind of, you know, poking at it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, obviously I, I knew the concept of lighting and, you know, what, you know, you know, I ran two scene presets forever. And then with, you know, like I actually had to do a little bit of programming on the strand mini palette back at great America. So I was slowly becoming familiar with the concept of, of how to program and how things work. Um, as far as the hog, like how, yeah, how do you go from an expression to the hog? Cause they're way different. So Disney used to do all the intermission stuff for the mighty ducks in Anaheim back when, uh, it was started when, when Michael Eisner created that team. So Disneyland supported all that entertainment that went on there. Well, they had a handful of golden scans and a Jans hog. Okay. And 
So they, so we were called in to run some of these, these shows here and they're like, Hey, you know, Jason, you should come too. So my friend, Josh Hutchings was one of the guys, he does all of the game shows that are on network TV today, <laughs> by the way. all of them, like any, any game show, that, you know, that's on prime time. It, it's probably him. If it's not him, you know, it's, it's very rare anyway. So he had kind of figured out how this console worked. And so we together all started learning about how this console worked. And it was just, it was so low, low risk program. Yeah, low stakes. It was just some golden scans and doing some, you know, stuff during the inter, you know, the the, inter, the intermissions and the hockey game that uh that it was a it was a pretty easy thing to learn on. I mean, you know, because it was you know, again, because there was there were there was very little demand for stuff you had to do. So, uh, I did that for like 2 months and then near after that is when they asked me to do that show at the whole hog too. And like, well, you kind of know, you know, like once you play with it a little bit. So when I got on the whole hog too, after using the jans hog, I'm like, this is the easiest thing in the world to program yeah. because you know, the jans, they had all these like shortcuts you had to do to like get anything and you building effects on it was impossible. And you had to use everything canned. And then when you went to the whole hog too, it was like, it was like going to an automatic car at that point, you know, from manual. It was just like, oh, this is so easy. And so because of that, I was able to just just fly on it. Yeah. So, yeah, it was coming from the Jans hog. And, and you and, had that one that one little tiny screen in the middle. Oh, yeah. you, if you were lucky, you got that external screen, but you can only ever open one window on it. Correct. Correct. So and, you know, remember all the, the shortcuts to like, you know, like. I you know, don't. It was like, like hog one, hog two, hog three to like open up the you know what was on the screen to like you know to go th you know go through the programmer or the output window and uh, but learning that Jans hog was so frustrating. Like why is it not when I play back the cue? How come everything I had on stage is not coming back? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that was that was a steep curve. <laughs> well, you seem to have surmounted it. I know you know the vast majority of the of the desks out there right now, right? But what do you primarily work in? Um, it's whenever I do something outside now, it's usually uh, an MA. Mm -hmm. There was a period of time where there was there was probably a good five years where I would float between an EOS, an MA, and a six seven six. You're one of the six seven six guys. <laughs> well, I do live in California and near LA. That's pretty much you know it's it's either the three people and you know in New York who use it or you know anyone on TV in Los Angeles, right? <laughs> but uh, I use Virtuoso for a few things just because they were PRG shows and, you know, like, do you want a Virtuoso? Like, sure. You know, and, and I, I enjoyed it. Like, it, it, it was a fun console to program. So whenever a PRG show would come up, you know, like, do you want a 676? Like, yeah, sure. You know, like, mm -hmm. again, that was another, you know, console. There was a little bit of a learning curve on it, but it was closer to the EOS, obviously, than the, the yeah. MA. I like it because it kept me interested and fresh in programming, right? <laughs> Except yeah. for the like, 20 minutes of how do I record? How do I record on this desk? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in 2000, though, was uh, that was the first time I used a MA. And I did a show at Disney and a very young version of software. It was so frustrating that I didn't use an MA again for another two years after that. That is a common thing I've heard from people who were tried using them on the first versions of the software. Uh, it did this thing where timing values would track. Like if you recorded a cue with independent time, the timing value would track into other cues. 
It was so frustrating. What, what also made it frustrating is that it did time code, but the only interface they had was only the timeline in the time code. You know, the, you had no text entry how it is now. You know, you could switch between mm-hmm. a line or you could switch between the text. They, text entry was not an option wow. at all. You had to use, you know, if you wanted you had to insert it and then scroll it backwards and forwards to where you wanted it to be in the timeline. So we ended up not using time code on the MA. Instead, the Obsession 2 was firing off cues to the MA, but the Obsession 2 had this horrible bug during that show where sometimes when time code would start, it would land on a bad frame or something like that, and it would execute every cue of the show in a second. It would go cue, 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 and you'd have to like disable time code and start again and hope that it didn't get a bad frame. I don't think I used an MA again until 2002, I think. And then really, I didn't really start using it in earnest until 2007. MA2, I used right from the beginning. One of the biggest shows I've done for Disney was opened on an MA2. and We needed the horsepower for that show. So uh, we opened that show on version 1.7. And that was uh, World of Color at California Adventure, the big fountain show. And then... Just under a year later, we were already the, to up to version 2.2, and uh, it ran on version 2.2 until two years ago. <laughs> 2.2 was a much friendlier time than 1.7. It was a much friendlier time. Uh, so let's talk about rides and attractions, if you don't mind. All right. Sort of in general, just to start with, how long is the process for a ride or a new show and how far along has it gotten before you start working on it? Well, for instance, if we take a Star Wars Galaxy's Edge that we opened last year, I first was brought into that probably about two years, two and a half years before. Very, very minimal uh, involvement where the control designers and line designers are coming up with the base package. And sometimes I'd have like a cursory input, you know, into like, hey, how does this sound? Will this be okay? Can you work with this? Kind of involvement. And it's not until probably about a year and a half that I really start to get involved in it, where a year and a half before I'm in the field, not before it opens, really, like a year and a half before going to be in the field, where maybe I'm starting to build the show or to help out with the patch to send to the integrator. It's like in spurts. You know, I, I, you know I'll work on it for a little bit, and then I don't work on it for months and months. And then it's not until we get closer to actual in-field time that... Uh, when my involvement comes full time. So I was in the field for Star Wars. Well, I guess it's, it's twofold because I did both the attractions there as well as the area development, the outside lighting. One of the rides, the uh, Millennium Falcon attraction, I guess would have been two years before opening. I was in a, you know, a nondescript building in Glendale where we had a full-scale mock-up of it, where they were testing the software for it. So I was already building actual cues. I was building a toolkit of cues for the game to trigger. They were refining the game and would ask for things from week to week, like, hey, can you make this? Can you make this effect? Can you format this? Like, you know, like, so I was creating, like I said, like a big toolkit of lighting effects for the game to trigger. So that was a pretty long process, you know, that, that's a anomaly where two years I'm already making lighting cues for an attraction. Otherwise, you know, it's not until I actually get in the field that 
I'm really earnestly working on anything. For lighting programming in general on, on attractions, to date, we haven't really used any previs per se. Now, Disney does quite a bit, a lot, on planning attractions now. They'll, they'll pre-visit. But for actually, like, queuing lighting, we don't right now. We're not actively doing that so much, mostly because of how things end up in the field. Like, it would all change anyway. Like, we, we could do it. We could prove our concepts, but it's nothing we, we would do in previs would translate to real life. Why spend the time and the money doing it ahead of time when we know that we're not going to find anything really valuable? Time better spent sitting down with the LED fixtures and writing all the colors you you'll ever need exactly with it in a studio than making previs that you're just going to throw away. Right. And what happens a lot in attraction lighting is that even with all of the planning and drawings and coordination that happens, there'll still be a air duct that was run right in front of a catwalk where all the lighting was going to go <laughs> because they didn't look at the drawing or there was some miscommunication or they were on a different drawing or you were there on the wrong day and didn't see them laying down the sprinkler. <laughs> the two things that will never move that you have to watch out for, sprinklers and HVAC. <laughs> Do they kind of live in Revit? Where, you know, where are they constructing these things? Our department lives in AutoCAD still. Mm -hmm. And so the lighting plot is still always generated 2D, but then the bulk of the rest of Imagineering uses Revit now. And so what happens is that we have another team that takes the, the lighting package and redraws it basically in Revit. For the other disciplines that need to see it in Revit, they can, but, but all of our stuff is still hanging out in AutoCAD. Got it. What do you need to have constructed before you're in the field? I can't move forward until dimmer racks are on, things are energized, the equipment room is dust-free, which is a, uh, dust-free is a lie. It's, it's, <laughs> it's never, ever dust-free, but it, it shows up on the schedule as dust-free. Um, so yeah, so my gear has to be installed, but not configured or anything yet. The biggest thing is dimmer racks and, um, power supplies. You know, my life right now consists of color kinetics, PDSs, and dimmers. Like, that's all I'm doing these days, which is great because it's the easiest stuff to deal with, and it's pretty bulletproof is all this color kinetic stuff. So we use a pile of different stuff, but the bulk of what we use is color kinetics. What stuff do you want to make sure is in your show file before you arrive? These days, pretty much now what I use is uh, Mosaic and Paradigm, both ETC Mosaic is uh, Pharos, which has its roots in Whole Hog 2, because it's made by the same guys who made that, uh, the Carillon guys. So in Mosaic, this is the thing I do like a year and a half out, where I'm I, basically I, I build the show, which is because it's uh, Mosaic is very graphical. It's a timeline-based programming environment. It's also architectural friendly in the sense that uh, you can bring in uh, a plot of your show and lay the fixtures out over the plot of the show. There's multiple ways to organize everything that make it so that when you work on like a huge attract, like one of the attractions at Star Wars has 20 different scenes in it. And a, and a scene can be like a single room or a big room or a place where something happens as you travel along the attraction. And there are like 12 dimmer racks in there 
and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of LED fixtures in there. So the things about those big attractions is organizing all that stuff and being able to get to it while you're traversing along the attraction and zero in on just a scene you're working on. And Mosaic has this great feature where if you have everything organized right, you could be sitting in one scene and gain control of the lighting for the one scene, but not affect the rest of the attraction. Because it used to be that you would, if you were just going to like play around in this one scene, it's possible that the rest of the attraction would go black while you were working with just the channels in this one scene. But now you can do it so you can filter it basically so that if you're in this one scene, you can just work with these channels and everything else can operate what it's doing and you can just work in the scene here. So it's pre-building all that stuff. So when you get out there into the field, all that stuff is ready to go and you're just like, oh, all that stuff is addressed wrong. I'll address that. I'll address, you know, so like hopefully you're not doing, I'm not doing a lot of addressing these days. Usually a lot of that gets done beforehand, but there's, there's a process of making sure things line up like you normally do right on any show. Um, and then actually getting to creating the content of whatever it is we're doing in there. Looking at Rise of the Resistance, which I did experience, I am honestly in awe of what you guys created. I didn't know that you worked on that. I can't believe what you guys created. It's a beast. <laughs> um, my definition of theater magic isn't that I don't know how it's done, but that I don't care. And hearing a laser blast, seeing it travel over my head and then hit a wall and then leave a pockmark in the wall, I don't care how that was done. <laughs> um, but I have to admit, it did not even occur to me that you wouldn't be using MAs. Yeah, you know, I the reason I choose this over the other is because of there's a lot of custom scripting that I do too for that are required for some of this stuff. Um, so there's Lewis scripting that this that the thing does. It's it's all about the triggering it does too. It has the way you build triggers is very robust. Um, it can do 12 different timecode streams, but it, everything goes into and out of it. And you know, for example, on uh, the Tron attraction in Shanghai, a big part about attraction. One of the things I like about attractions is figuring out complex logic problems that may happen when you're to get the best show. How do you make this work? Like there's, there's there was this one problem I had to figure out where. So you have the the train, the ride vehicle. When it enters the launch scene, you know stuff would happen. But sometimes they would dispatch the next ride vehicle quicker than usual than just a, a normal relaxed dispatch. And what would happen is that the show would get truncated because of, of how quickly the next trigger came in. So I actually had to create a, you know, a script that would look at how far along the, the show was progressing for the first ride vehicle. And if it was past a certain point, then it would allow the next vehicle's show to begin, you know, that sort of stuff is, you know, getting into the minutia of like, how do you, how do you get the best show possible uh, with the least amount of either programming or conditions to, to allow the, the show look, to look correct. And, and a lot about that platform is cool because it's all baked in into the op, you know, to the, the firmware and, the, and the, the software of the, of the show. So the deeply contrast that is, so the big Ferris wheel, the observation wheel in Vegas, the high roller wheel. Yeah. I did that on an MA. Now probably should have done it 
on Mosaic, but they expect MA because it was at the time it was going to have way more theatrical lighting than it ended up. Now there's a ton of lighting on that wheel. Like it's all color changing Martin stuff on that wheel, but in the initial design, they were going to have moving lights and video playback and value engineered. It just ended up just being the LEDs. So they expected an MA because it was going to have moving lights and all sort of stuff on it. So we had the MA when I was out there. I was like, all right. So I had to make the MA be crazy bulletproof for an architectural installation because it was going to be operated by people who are, you know, not even button pushers. They're just hired operation staff who were never going to interact with the console at all, except to, they want to be able to choose colors for the special effects, for, for the effects on certain days, because either a, a corporation decided to buy out the wheel and they wanted it in their colors, or the Super Bowl was that weekend and they wanted to choose the two colors of the teams that were going to be playing and the effects would only go between those colors all night, or, or you know, standard colors for uh, holidays, Etc. So I <laughs> I had to make basically just a layout screen that that was the only thing that they would see is a, a series of layout screens on the MA where they, where they could choose the modes or choose colors and that sort of thing. And then behind the scenes, I have hundreds of macros <laughs> to make all of that come to fruition. Um, and then additionally, I also had to make it robust enough that uh, guest programmers could come in and do time code based little shows that the wheel would do. So like two or three other programmers have come in after me and, you know, I basically created a manual of like, when you come in to create a show, here's where you put everything. Don't touch the rest of this. <laughs> so it sounds like using uh, Mosaic and Paradigm that you're more programming than you are programming, you know, that you're building line code before you start building queues. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and there is a little portion of it that is just me keeping myself interested. Like, for instance, my friend told me the story about how this guy was using Mosaic and he's like, uh, I need to do this thing, but I think it's going to it's going to take a lot of work to enter line by not line by line. But in the trigger thing, the trigger building triggers on it is very easy where you can say, like, if I get this, do this. Right. It's literally just drag and drop this stuff. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, if I think if I do that, I'm going to have to do a lot of work to get this up. He's like, well, and my friend was like, well, hey, don't worry. Like, I have this script you can, like, this one little script you can put in, you know, and we'll do it for you. He's like, oh, okay, well, I'll let you know if I need help. Then, you know, fast forward like six months later, the guy contacts him and he's like, hey, uh, thanks a lot. You know, some of the ideas you gave me worked out really great. He's like, well, you never asked for that script, you know, that, you know, I offer. He's like, oh, I know. I just made, you know, like 2000 entries, <laughs> one by one. <laughs> entry. I'm just like, you know, so a lot of what, I, you know, the scripting that I do is more to like either save me work or just to see if I can do it. Because I because at, at my heart, I'm not like a coder. Right. I'm I'm a tinkerer. You know, like I'm a cut and paster. <laughs> so like I don't know Lua. But I know how to cut and paste Lua, like 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 the best of them. <laughs> That's primarily how we interact with Arduinos, where it's like, right. okay, well, what what code is out there? Well, I bet I can make it do what I want. Yes. That's how that's how I program that stuff. It's like, oh, and I broke it. Okay. What <laughs> <did> I... <laughs> Better restore back to the <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's that comma. 
Ah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh yeah, there's nothing nothing helpful like an Excel where it'll say, "Did you mean to type an extra parentheses?" Yes. No, there's no help like that. Yeah, there was a really funny video I saw of like what people think it is and what it actually is about coding. It, it's like a picture of this guy and like code flashing, you know, and a bunch of monitor screens or whatever, you know, like what they think it is, right? You know, and then what it actually is, it cuts to a guy who's like putting in code and it breaks and then switches over to Google. What is this <laughs> error, you know? <laughs> I love that so much. Yes. In fact, I, I want to post that along with this episode. Yeah. yeah uh, if I can like, find that. That's exactly it. <laughs> so in the midst of all the sort of tinkering and work, um, do attractions lock before opening like commercial theater or do they kind of keep getting tinkered with? Yes, they lock until you leave. <laughs> so we'll obviously we get buy off from creative on what something looks like. So we don't actually divert at all from what we, we was bought off of from the from you know our head creatives. But what we might do is tweak a little for as long as we may still be on site, <laughs> just to finish off some things or some timing things or like I said, sometimes we may add a light or two to just flush it out. So no, like we won't be done until we leave, basically. And even now to this day. Even on Star Wars, you know, a few months ago, like there was something that wasn't working quite right. So I went in and fixed it really quick. So because we're still around all these things all the time, there's still opportunity to, to make little tweaks here and there. I'm going out to Shanghai next month and there is something out there that, uh, that was broken when I left five years ago. Um, it hasn't been fixed. I fixed it like two weeks after I left but I haven't had a chance to go upload it <laughs> oh. since then. <laughs> like, I, I kept asking people to like, can you upload this thing for me? And I'm like, no one has ever been able to get around to it. It's a minor problem that you never notice, but still like, so I'm really looking forward to going back out to Shanghai next month, if only to upload this one file. <laughs> Was there some concern that if we upload this fix and there's an issue with it, that without having the programmer on site, then, yes. you know, yeah. like we don't, we just, we just don't want to break anything else by yes. uploading a fix that hasn't been tested with the programmer on site. It is true. Yes. So, so yes, there is always that worry. There's been some like heavily automated tours I've programmed. And then like, you know, after the first two tour stops, I'll get a thing. It's like, hey, can you add this? Can you add this option? Can you do this? And I'm like, oh man, I don't want to, because if it blows something up, then what? Right. So we had that we had that same thing happen this year. Uh, we opened this whole new land in Tokyo at Tokyo Disneyland, and, a, and an attraction there. We had to work out some timing changes after the whole team had left. It obviously wasn't going to be coming back because there was no traveling. So they set up cameras on our network, like multi -cam multiple cameras, so the team could make the changes and then watch everything, you know, remotely mm -hmm. to make sure that you know everything was operating like it should. Yeah. So yes, so yeah, that's that's a worry. <laughs> well, so speaking of these things, you know, for after opening, how does documentation work? What are you trying to document and how are you documenting it? And then who are the primary customers of that documentation? So Imagineering works for is hired by the resorts. That's all the same company, but kind of the way it works is Disneyland says, we would like a new ride. We would like to spend this much money. And Imagineering goes, would you like 
one of these, <laughs> right? You know, mm -hmm. you know, like, a, you know, it's, it's kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying it, but that's, that's kind of how it works. So, so we work for Disneyland and so we produce all this, you know, the, an attraction. And then when we're done, we give them binders of material that says, this is how it works. First, well, we do a whole training seminar with whoever is, you know, the, the, who are the specialist teams in whatever field. And then we hand over a big pile of paperwork and say, here you go. Enjoy. And then largely we're done with it. Now, at each resort, there is a local Imagineering team who work at and with the resort to keep up the quality of the shows. So if the uh, people who actually maintain the rides have questions from that point, they will usually go to that team. So it, it doesn't hit our team, like, because we've already moved on to building new stuff. So, so basically, if the team, the imaginary team at the local resort has questions, then they then finally it gets back to us. So as far as what we produce to them is we provide a manual of how things, everything works. For lighting, we have a huge database that includes architectural specifications, fixture cut sheets, uh, fixture schedule, panel schedule, um, for every single theme park all in one database. So you can go into the database, look up Disneyland, look up the Tiki Room, and get a full fixture schedule of every single light and fixture and patch and everything. It's all accessible through a database. So we turn over all that information to the resort as well. Um, as well as, you know, I'll generate, you know, a theory of operation of how it's all supposed to work at a at a high level, you know, of like how the triggers come in and what they do. And so we leave them with a ton of paperwork and we try to do it about four or six weeks after we have opened the attraction. Mm -hmm. Because, again, it's that thing where like we're still kind of like moving lights around or tweaking or, you know, and adjusting, you know, and still like you know, doing the closeout documentation, we don't start that until pretty much as soon as the ride has opened. And I'm like, we're not going to make any changes anymore. Got it. And so if a mover gets replaced, whose job is it to check the focus and the edge? And what do they, re and what do they reference? So all of the focus notes are, are usually written in the, you know, comments for in the Fictor schedule. So, you know, all that, you know, and, it's actually very rare that we actually use moving lights in any attraction. For for this reason? For this reason, yeah. So um, we, we do have some attractions that use them. Um, there's one at Disneyland that uses six of them. And the programmer, I didn't program that one, but the programmer who did it created a, a whole custom scripting thing so that they just go to a web page to update the focus. So like basically... They they go to a web page that shows what the focus should look like, and they're they're sitting theoretically they're sitting in the room in real life looking at you know the scenery, and so they have a reference picture, and so they hit buttons to upy downy the, the the fixture to make it look like the picture, and then they you know hit record, and it automatically through the web page sends all that data back to the controller. Got it. So this is built. This is something that was built out inside uh, Mosaic. Yes. Mosaic has a web server built into it, too, so... Got it. Yeah. So if we could discuss an attraction from start to finish, uh, you know, you mentioned Tron Light Cycle Power Run in Shanghai already. Uh, if I could ask you about that one. Sure. At one point in the process, did you join that project? And specifically, what were you working on on that project? For 
Shanghai Disneyland, I was responsible for Tomorrowland, programming almost everything in Tomorrowland. Oh, I see. Which included Tron. Um, there is a small attraction there, Rocket Jets, and then the area development. Um, the only thing I didn't do in there was the Buzz Lightyear attraction. So I was probably probably about a year before I was again I was pre-building all of the show files and patch and getting all that sorted out before that uh, before I actually got in the field. I think all in I did a probably over several trips I did two and a half months out there, not all in one spread. I you know was broken up into several trips mostly because things take so long and architectural that not everything will be ready at once. So it doesn't make sense for me to stay out there for a long period of time if not everything will be ready. So I'll, the trip gets broken up for me. So like in November of a year, I went out and I did some minor test and adjust inside Tron where not everything was ready, but it was, it was just checking to see how things are progressing, maybe address and get to some things that, uh, that were as far along as they were with the expectation that I was going to come back and do actual programming the following year. So some of my trips are just just to like to check in and make sure things are installed right, get as many things addressed as possible, or to just have things turned on in a temporary fashion so that so when I leave the designer behind, he can be working with the crew to either focus or check placement, et cetera. As we're getting closer to opening day, um, so this would probably be about three or four months out is when I really started in earnest on on Tron, where the ride was operating. So we it was a little bit of sometimes either riding the attraction or being locked down in one part of the ride where like a safe zone. So you could be inside the the building and watch the train go around the attraction and you could see it triggering different things inside the attraction so you could be sitting and watch and work out your timing you know for as many so i would move i would move around to these safe zones inside the attraction to like be able to work that out because if you just try and keep riding the ride you like it's super hard <laughs> sometimes to work out a lot of that timing we would we would go programmers to the vehicle to, to work out some stuff, but a lot of it was like sitting inside at certain parts of the attraction to like watch the timing of things. So that probably, it probably took a, a couple months to hone in on the attraction itself. At the same time, what would happen is I would work for like a little bit on, on the coaster. And then at night I would work on all the outside lighting like there's this huge dome that's outside of the attraction and that had 500 800 color blasts all over it you know they're all everything's individually controlled there's a time code sync to all of that underneath there's all these tiny strips of led that formed these big hexagonal uh, shapes that would illuminate as the ride vehicle would pass underneath so there was a trigger that we uh, that we receive that's you know said so the, the vehicle's coming into the area and then these individual you know there's hundreds of these led strips and it would illuminate this hexagon pattern as it was chasing the vehicles and went by now every time we would get the trigger what would happen is like the 
trigger would check to see what color palette the rest of the land was using and then fire off the correct color for whatever uh, was in the rest of the land to happen with the hexagon stuff. So there, there was a deep level of integration between what the land was doing versus what the attraction was doing. And all that would get worked out while I was out there at night uh, watching the, the, the coaster go by. Um, and then out, out in the land, uh, getting all of these, you know, all these fixtures working for one, and then working to a point where you could start programming them all. So it's, you know, it's, it's like a three to four month process when you're finally out in the field of just, you know, night after night, or, or if you're lucky enough to be inside, you know, uh, working through it all. I understand what you're saying about that sort of deep level of integration that's happening there. So is there just one, uh, lighting control system for this entire thing, the outside, the inside, the exterior lighting, the interior lighting. There are multiple controllers working together. Okay. Tron actually had on the interior, there were three controllers on the inside working as a single show file to control just the stuff on the inside. Then there was another three controllers on the outside just controlling the exterior of Tron. Two different show files, but the but each of the three, you know, so there was like two seventy universe and one twenty universe controller that that were the interior show file, okay. and those those controllers worked together as one. On the outside, there was a you know a, a show file, if you will, just for the outside. In all, for all of Tomorrowland, there were um, eight different show files that controlled either like one show file that was just for the spinny ride, one just for the Buzz Lightyear attraction, one just for the exterior of the entire land. Star Wars, uh, Galaxy's Edge, there was 13 show files on that show where um, they, uh, there was one show file, you know, one controller that was just for the bulk of the rockwork lighting, but then there were individual um, controllers that were for specific zones of the exterior of the land. In addition to that, there was controllers just for like uh, the interior of the cantina, like one show file, one controller for the interior. And so it, it, it broke down a little bit more. Uh, Rise of the Resistance was three different show files where there was one for, you know, the attraction at large inside. There was one for um, the conveyance when you uh, before you get onto the uh, Star Destroyer, mm-hmm. that little thing, and then there was another show file that was for your escape from the Star Destroyer. Got it. While it's they're all the same attraction, they actually worked all asynchronously from each other. Well, they're all taking input from the same sources. Because I'm thinking about Tron Light Cycle, where it's like the ride that the trigger is saying where the train is in the ride are triggering both the interior controllers and the exterior controllers so the hexagons can follow the train. Yes, correct. And what about time servers and things like that? Uh, so uh, lighting keeps its time via paradigm. So the, the paradigm usually does anything that's like a single look. So we use paradigm mostly for everything on the exterior of a park. So lights on, lights off kind of stuff. Um, restaurants, shops, normal pathway lighting, you know, stuff that doesn't, not necessarily doing a show or anything cued, stuff that is simple time of day stuff, anything that's outside of an attraction, mostly. 
So there are different states of the day that are handled by the system. So whether the park is open or closed, whether it's day or night, if it's cloudy, when dusk is, all that information is handled by this one lighting control system. And we don't, and that's all based on astronomical or based upon a schedule that the resort sets. You know, like they know when it's going to open, they know when it's going to close. Okay. So all of that stuff gets handled by that system, and we dole that out to anyone who wants it. So we're, we're kind of the timekeeper for the park. So we give that signal to show control, so show control can know when the park is open or closed, whether it's day or night. But then we also send it internally to ourselves, so that passes on to Mosaic, so Mosaic knows whether it's day or night, open or closed, et cetera. So that's, that's, how we, that's how we keep time, basically, is even though Mosaic has the capability, I don't count on the clock always working on every controller, you know, every Mosaic controller I've ever done. I don't. Mm-hmm. So nothing I program is time-based inside that. What it is is looking for a trigger from Paradigm that tells it what time it is. Got you it. know, yeah. So so that all that gets handled at that level and not at the individual controller level. And what's the advantage of having like three different control systems, let's say inside Tron, and then two different ones outside Tron? The, the reason that there's three inside is because of of channel count. Like oh, there okay. were okay, yeah, there was you know 140 universes of you know of stuff inside, and it, it's just just a bit of. And so that wasn't for like ease of siloing tasks or anything. That was just no, because it was a single show file. Like it was still. It was still, it wasn't like I, you know, would open this show file for this scene and this show file. It was all one show file that just, it was just depending on where they were patched. That's, 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 that's all it was. The the controller held the patch for whatever channels those were, but it was beyond that. It's invisible to me that I'm on three different controllers. Got it. Okay. 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 It's it's an NPU dynamic, basically. I see. Okay. So what you are interacting with is two different show files, one for interior, one for exterior. Correct. Correct. Um, one one little caveat on that is like something like the Millennium Falcon attraction. There was a controller for every single cockpit, and we have multiple cockpits on that show. So, but it's the same show file in every single one of them, but they're all individual from each other. They're, they're right? siloed. That they run asynchronously. Correct. Correct. So I still created one show file and threw a cool feature on it. Once I'm on the net, the, this this network that has them all connected, I could push that same show file to all of them at the same time. So, yeah. So any change I would make, I could instantly send them to all of the cockpits at the same time. Was there anything strange or were there any problems that came up with just taking the show file and copying it seven times? Like were like, were the differences from cockpit to cockpit as far, I mean, I'm assuming patch is different. I'm assuming that there are differences. No, no, that's the thing. The patch is exactly the same because the, the data lives separate on the network from anything else. So there was no worry about anything overlapping each other. So it was actually, so everything was same, 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 like on, in every single one of them, um, which made it easy. Like, you know, they're all identical, identical addresses, everything. So there wasn't anything odd um, that I can think of that we came across, but, but using that same uh, kind of theory of how we operated that years ago when we did star tours, when, when we redid star tours back in 2000, 
10, 9, um, back from the original show that was on film to where uh, now you, you get, um, you can get a different adventure every time you go on it, right? Mm-hmm. There's like, you know, you could go to Hoth or the Death Star, et cetera. So when they did that, they, they reprogrammed it. We put in Mosaic on that show. And there's for Disneyland, there's four different cabins. And those four cabins were on the same network. And when they put the mosaics on the same network, largely it was fine. But what happened is like he wrote the show and then and then uploaded the same show, exactly the same show to each of the uh, to each of the controllers. And the problem was internally in the software, it gave it the same controller ID because the name of the show was exactly the same. And what happened was it confused and shared triggers between them, and they all got confused on what which vehicle was receiving what. So the, the very minor thing he had to do in that instance, and this has been corrected in software since then, is that he had to change the name of the show file by at least a character in every on, on every single, mm-hmm. you know, so that they would generate a new project ID, basically. Got it. Yeah. But, you know, we didn't run any of those issues, though, on, uh, on Falcon. They actually went you know, a lot easier than, than I would have ever expected. Tell me about the difference between uh, Tron and Millennium Falcon, you know, where in one case, it's the ride operators who are triggering you through sending trains or doing whatever they're doing, and the trains themselves triggering you through their positions in the ride versus Smuggler's Run, where the riders themselves are triggering effects and also triggering the final walkout state. Tron is more traditional, right? It's like the ride vehicle comes in, it hits a beam brake or a trigger or a signal from the ride system that says that it's here and something happens, right? That, that's how most typical attractions work. So something like um, Smuggler's Run, the experience is being driven by the game system, right? And so like I was saying before how, you know, two years before I was creating a toolkit for the attraction to for the for the for the game to trigger you know so that would be like a laser blast on the right a laser blast on the left a missile fire you know above a missile fire below uh, you got hit by a laser you got hit by a rock you got you know a, a, an asteroid you you ran into something something is broken over Something is broken on this side. Something's broken over here. You know, so it became this huge tree of things that could happen. And so what I would do is I'd give these, you know, like we we gave everything position numbers and like, okay, position number one is having this happen. And position number four is having this happen. So they're copy kind of copies of the same kind of effect. Right. And so, so then they would, they would send like, oh, this position is having this problem. This position is getting this. This position is getting this. laser is firing. And then the system would then take all those those triggers and dole out um, whatever variation it needed based upon the trigger it was receiving. And then I had internal things to make sure that certain things either didn't step on each other. You know, so like you, you couldn't truncate something. So you could... For instance, keep like because I was having a problem like if you were firing the laser that you could fire it so quick that you wouldn't see the tail out of the previous one. It would just like stop. So I had to create, you know, multiple um, versions of that so that it could fire a bunch of different ones. You know, basically like layering 
different uh, sequences on top of each other. Yep. So, you know, so every time, it, but I was receiving the same trigger at the time. So the trigger would have to come in, see if something else was running, run a different one instead of those, and then and then keep cascading. You know, so it wouldn't it wouldn't fire the same thing every time. It would fire a different one every time. So, so it was building all of that so that it that they could do anything and not trip me up. So I have a lot of I have a lot of logic checks to make sure that I'm in a correct mode or this is happening or this is happening to make sure that you're not fouling the show um, based upon the triggers that are coming in. Just for example, if a user manages to fire the laser fast enough, it'll be, we're already running instance one of the laser. If instance one of the laser is running, run two. If you're running instance two of the laser, run three. Yes. So so that that was basically, I mean, that's, that's it. It's just... You know, and and I did this so far ahead of time of when I was actually in the field. I was working on that that when we were actually in field with that with the entire project, I didn't have to spend a lot of time working in the cockpit because I'd already done it. You know, like a year a year earlier. So there, when we actually got out there. There wasn't a lot more I had to do. Um, there were some sequences they kept changing that were there. There's a couple sequences that are out of your control and just on rails. There's, there are some sequences where like they're going to happen the same every time. So there was some stuff that, that I had to tweak that till the very end because they kept changing the timing of that a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> so in that instance, I have like very specific cues that happen more traditional kind of like star tours kind of cues where like that's a motion simulator. We have it at Tomorrowland Disneyland where like it's a, it's an on rails thing that happens, right? Where, uh, you know, a, a set of a set of things happen, and there's cute effects just like any other show. So, amidst all the laser firing and missile firing and things exploding, there's a portion where I, then I get a trigger that says this event is happening, and then I play out like a 30 second thing, and then it goes back to the lasers firing and missiles firing, and who knows what's happening. But I did that in the field. I had to like tweak that. And we're going to leave it there for now with our guest, Jason Badger. Check out the second half of the interview on our next episode, where we'll talk more about theme parks, as well as Jason's work in theater and on television. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight, we tweet at podcastinglight, and we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by the Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show. Oh.